Let me pray once again as we come to God's word. Our gracious Father in heaven, as we meet you in your word today, please free us from our preoccupation with ourselves and all the consume and the, the all-consuming nature of our circumstances. If our hearts are callous and stubborn right now, please soften them to your word. If we're feeling hurt and disoriented, please redirect our hearts to your patience, graciousness and mercy. If we're feeling cool and indifferent towards you, please help us now not to shrivel in response to your word but warm our hearts with the good news of Jesus. We come with thankful hearts ready to receive your word. Please remind us afresh of how you have poured out your grace upon us so abundantly. And may we all continue on the path to becoming the people you designed us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a common sight uh, you see when you travel in Asia is people seeing people riding bicycles with somebody doubling on the back of the bicycle, uh, often sitting sideways on the bike rack. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that. Uh, the first time I tried it uh, was with one of my language tutors. Now, I was riding the bicycle and she was sitting on the rack at the back. Now, my, no doubt my bike wobbled erratically as I tried to pick up enough speed without us both falling over. However, at the time, I remember clearly that my mind was abruptly taken from my struggle to hold a straight line with a bike to what the, the conversation that I turned to with my tutor. She said to me, oh, this morning in our English exam, we had to answer the 10 things that Christians believe. I thought, that's interesting, I thought. A, a secular university in this country teaching their students about the Bible? With much anticipation, I asked, thinking about whether it was the Apostles' Creed or, or what was going on. What ten things are they, I asked. And then she started to say, serve only God, uh, don't misuse his name, uh, don't steal, uh, I forget the other ones. And then she said, oh, you're a Christian, what are the other ones that I'm missing? Uh, Ah, the Ten Commandments, I said. Uh, I managed to blurt out, trying to sort of delay for time as I was desperately trying to rack my brains. Does anybody know the Ten Commandments off by heart without looking up at the wall there? <laughs> uh, I said, I spurred out, don't make an image of God, I think. Uh, don't lie, honour your father and mother. Um, uh, don't be jealous, I think, maybe. Uh, maybe not. I can't remember the others. And she said, it seems like I know more than you do. And if it wasn't losing face with that question, then I was about to lose face with the next one when she asked, do you keep them? Now, I'm glad I didn't fall off my bike at this stage because wearing helmets wasn't part of the culture in this country. And I thought it came to mind. I asked, do you know what the purpose of the Ten Commandments is? Well, teach us how to live, she queried questioningly. Well, that's part of it, I replied, a very important part. But another purpose is that they are also indirectly words of condemnation. For they also remind us that we don't keep them. And this passage that we are looking at today in 1 Timothy prompts us to consider where do God's words of condemnation lead us? No one likes to hear words of condemnation. 
But where do God's words of condemnation lead us? And in the church Timothy was at in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul had predicted four years earlier that even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. And that is what had happened as the church begins to decay from the inside out. As Tom reminded us earlier, it's a sobering reminder that as a church, if we do not allow the scriptures to define what we believe and what we do, then the forces of culture will. We saw last week in the passage that certain people in the church had departed from the command to love, to love God and to love people. A love that springs from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith in Christ Jesus. And the result was meaningless talk and a speculation of the unknown rather than a stewardship of what was known about the good news of Jesus. And this battle often uh, begins in the heart, the place of affection and desire that reflects our true priorities. When we don't like God's design and purpose for our lives, we make up our own agendas and reject his. And Paul described the people who were spreading this kind of thinking in his own words of condemnation in verse 7 when he said this, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And this leads him into to today's verses to touch on some aspects of the law that they were trying to teach. He says in verse 8 there, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly, now, when you hear the word law, what did you think of? Maybe you thought of rules and regulations uh, that we have to obey as members of society. We use the expression law-abiding citizen, for example. I don't know what you thought of, but often when the New Testament talks about the law, it is referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch, or the Torah, it contains not just rules and regulations, but the history of Israel right up to the death of Moses. In other places, like Romans 3, the New Testament refers to the whole of the New Testament when it's talking about the law. And Paul is probably thinking about the whole of the New Testament here. And he begins by clarifying that there is nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with it. The law, we know that the law is good. The problem is not that the law itself, but the lawful use of the law, the proper use of the law. We know that the law is good, if one uses it properly. Now it begs the question then, well, what then is the proper way to use the law? Where does this lead to? What is the lawful use of the law? Well, there are many uses of the law, um, and this passage doesn't give us a comprehensive account of all of those. But it does highlight one key one, and indirectly another one. Paul goes on to highlight one use of the law from verse 9 to 11. He says in verse 9, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous. The righteous don't need the law because they're already doing what is right anyway, so they don't need the law to direct them. Now, in the upper hall there, I'm not sure if you've noticed that there is a sign next to the stage, on both sides of the stage, that says words to the effect of, Do not climb on the stage. Now, the purpose of the sign is to protect children from injury, both themselves and any other kid they might happen to fall on if they fell off the stage. Although not as important, it's also to protect the wall from getting damaged, which it has been doing quite a lot in the last six months. That's a fair rule to have for good reasons. Now, the purpose of the sign is not there for the individual kids who don't climb on the stage. It's not there for them because they don't climb on the stage. They're already doing the right thing. 
The sign is for the individual kids that you have an inclination and a desire to climb on the stage. Now, sometimes, sometimes seeing a sign like that makes, gives you an inclination to climb on the stage. But uh, part of the purpose of the sign is to constrain uh, them from acting on their impulse to climb up there. That's a constraining use of the law. However, if a kid happens to climb up there, then the sign no longer has a restraining use. He's already up there. Uh, so if I went up to this kid on the stage and pointed to the sign, don't climb on the stage, then the purpose of the sign would change. The purpose would no longer be to constrain, because he's already on the stage. The purpose of the sign would then be to condemn. The sign now becomes a word of condemnation, pointing out what they have done wrong. That is the kind of point that Paul is trying to make here. And he follows the pattern of the Ten Commandments with a word of condemnation in verses 9 to 10. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practising homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. One purpose of God's law is to condemn to condemn those who don't follow it, to show they are lawbreakers, rebels in fact, strong language. But just in case we might be sitting there all smug and that we fall in the category of being righteous, a clean skin so to speak, in the clear, Paul concludes with verse 10 and 11. Oh, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. That pretty much covers all humanity. You and me alike are lawbreakers and rebels, ungodly and sinful, unholy and irreligious, because we haven't always been obedient to God's word. We've followed what is contrary to sound doctrine and not always what conforms to the gospel. We have all climbed up onto the stage, so to speak. And King Charles may have been surrounded by pimp pomp and ceremony last night in his coronation, but at the end of the day, he's a sinner just like the rest of us. It's a strong word of condemnation. Where do God's words of condemnation lead us? Where do God's words of condemnation lead us? And to answer that, we first need to consider an improper use of the law, an unlawful use of the law. What is an improper use of God's law? Well, God's law is abused when we expect it to achieve something that it was never intended to achieve. The law was not intended to be the means to make us right with God. 100% obedience to the law of God is not humanly attainable. Our nature is tainted by sin. For Christians, we know that it is not goodliness that makes us right with God. It is not possible to do it on our own, to be good enough for God. So when we hear God's words of condemnation, what we need first of all is not directions for saving ourselves, because we can't. And that was the problem of the false teachers. But what we need to hear is how God has saved us from ourselves. And Paul goes on to speak about God's mercy to himself in the next six verses. 
Let's pick it up from verse 12. Verse 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Now Paul initially speaks about his current circumstances, about being appointed by God for his, for his service. And although he had been faithful in the wrong things, the Lord was willing to consider him then and there still worthy of trust. Therefore, he was one who would be faithful in the future. But what follows is Paul majoring on his past to highlight how he got to where he is now. He delves into his past. And it's a kind of before and after testimony as the, the redeemed of the Lord tell their, his story. It begins with Paul the persecutor in verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, in his scathing description of himself, Paul speaks of his misplaced zeal. He came to see that he had been wrong. He had been speaking against God rather than for him. Now, Dr. Luke, who wrote Luke's Gospel, also wrote a part of Paul's biography in the story of the first Christians. It is the it's in the fifth book of the New Testament. We call it the Acts of the Apostles. And Dr. Luke writes this about Paul, who was previously known by the name Saul. He says this, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. That's the kind of man Paul was. Luke also writes further on in uh, chapter 26, uh, recalling words from Paul himself when he's speaking to a king. Not King Charles, King Agrippa. In Acts 26, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. And in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. A missionary to foreign cities to persecute the Christians. And one author summarised Paul by saying that he was a callous, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer, hell-bent on full-scale inquisition. He was indeed a frightening, violent enemy of Christians. But did you notice that verse 13 started with the words, even though... Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Something happened. Verse 13 continues. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor 
and a violent man, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief of the words in the text. And what Paul means here is that despite his ignorance and unbelief, God still showed him mercy. For Paul knew as well as anyone that he was not a righteous man after all. He too was a lawbreaker and rebel, condemned by the law of God for denying that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And despite acting in ignorance and unbelief, he was still a sinner. The worst of sinners as he describes himself in verse 16. But rather than condemning Paul, God mercied him, as one commentator said, if there is such a verb. I was shown mercy. And Paul expands on this in, 14, in verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me, poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And the language suggests an overflowing supply of God's grace. And the title of John Bunyan's classic book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, is, is based on this verse, if any of you have read that. And God's overflowing grace reminds me, I remember, of a, of a stream that I saw running through a town in France when I was backpacking in my early 20s. There was this stream running through the middle. The, the, the town was on a bit of a hill. And I was thinking, where's all this water coming from? And the person said to me, oh, from the source further upstream. Source? Like I've heard the word source before. What do you mean a source? I've never heard the word used to describe a stream before. And sure enough, a bit further upstream, there was this huge hole in the rock. Huge hole, really wide. And that just water was just pouring out, this huge volume of water just pouring out. And it was so loud, I, I hardly could hear any, anybody speak. And the water came from deep underground. It wasn't just a trickle coming out of the rock, it was huge. And it was hard to conceive of this immeasurably immense flow of water was just coming out of the ground like that. It's even harder to conceive of the immeasurable flow of God's grace. When grace abounds, then faith and love likewise abound. Hearts that were once filled with callous unbelief are now filled with faith and trust in God. Hearts once filled with hatred and violence like Paul's are now filled with love for God and love for people. But why would God be so gracious to Paul after all the destruction that he had wreaked? Why would, be God, why would God be so gracious? And what began with Paul's testimony to God's grace shown to him then becomes a message of how God's grace extends, not just to an individual, but to the whole world. God's mercy to Paul for the benefit of others. And verse 15 says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, says Paul. And as mentioned in the previous verses, part of the purpose of the law was to take on a condemning function. 
But though the law condemns us by showing us we are sinners, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the focus shifts from being condemned to being saved. So God's words of condemnation lead us ultimately to God's words of mercy. And as Christians, we know that the Bible teaches us that through his perfect life of obedience, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law in a way that we could not. But through his death on the cross, he dealt with the judgment we deserved, the condemnation we deserved, but not adhering to the law. And we receive his clean record of obedience when we are united to him by faith. And that is how Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And far from giving himself a rap, Paul calls himself the worst of sinners. His humility remains. But rather than dwelling in self-pity about his past, he goes on to point out one major reason why God would show mercy to him of all people. Verse 16 says, But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul is basically saying that God's grace can reach anybody. No one is out of reach of God's grace. God so designed it that this enemy of God would serve as an example, a powerful testimony to God's mercy and grace and patience to all, all who would believe in Christ and thus, uh, thus receive eternal life. And just as Israel's were not shown favour because they were more numerous in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy or, or more powerful, more righteous, so too does God raise something out of nothing in the life of Paul and his offer to us. So in response to God's words of condemnation, leading him to God's acts, in response to God's words of condemnation, it has led him to God's acts of mercy in Christ Jesus. And because of that, Paul understands that he explodes with praise, not with anger, but it explodes with praise in verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be your honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. He gets excited. He gets carried away. He does that a few times in the book of Timothy. And up until this point, Paul had been speaking of God in personal, intimate terms. Now he goes to the other extreme and he speaks of the immense awesomeness and, the, and his unfathomable character as King eternal with no peer. And this incredible message of this passage today is that the real king, eternal, immortal, invisible, has more than just words of condemnation for us. But God's words of condemnation are designed to lead us to his acts of mercy, his words of mercy in Jesus Christ. Let me close with a couple of reflections here. Firstly, what has happened in our past can be used by God to teach us about himself in the present. Now, God was patient with Paul in his past in order to teach us that no one is out of reach of God's mercy. Let's not be people who live in the past, but at least reflect on the past to understand more deeply about God in the present. 
And in the process, let's not lose sight of the grandeur of God's mercy. Let's not lose sight of the reality that God can change even the hardest of hearts. May our boldness in our prayers reflect that as we suffer challenges on many sides, living in a culture that it's turned its back on God. Secondly, related to that, the message of condemnation in Scripture is, of course, it's not welcome in this world of popular psychology. What I'm saying at the front here, people would be abhorred at. But God's word of condemnation doesn't stop at condemnation. We need to remember that. God's word of condemnation leads us to God's word of mercy. And some of us here today listening may be a prisoner of thinking that the word of God is only ever going to be a word of condemnation. That God is only hell-bent on judgment and anger and wrath and that somehow you are out of reach of his mercy. Don't believe that lie. God's word is calling you today to remember that God's word of condemnation is meant to lead you to God's word of mercy. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's recognise God's mercy for what it is. And thirdly and finally, for some of us we may take God's mercy for granted because we don't take it seriously enough. We don't take seriously God's word of condemnation. We don't take that seriously enough. A sign of a healthy, regenerate heart is one that doesn't take God's grace for granted. And pragmatically, that is reflected in a pattern of humble repentance, humility before God. How have you woven into your life a pattern of repentance before God? One way we try to model that as a congregation, is to have a time of confession in the service. And we're going to do that in a few moments. Uh, I'm going to have an extended pause, and then we're going to re confess together in humble repentance before God with the prayer that comes up on the screen. So let's pause. I'll give you a, a minute. A minute's a long time. Uh, and so I'll give you a minute. We'll try to focus in the silence and try to drown out any other distractions that might be going on, and then we'll pray a prayer of repentance that comes up on the screen together. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the schemes and desires of our own hearts and have broken your holy laws. We have left undone what we ought to have done, and we have done what we ought not to have done. Yet, good Lord, have mercy on us. Restore those who are repent according to the promises declared to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant, merciful Father, for his sake, that from now on we may live godly and obedient life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we can take great comfort in knowing that even though we ourselves are lawbreakers and rebels, ungodly and sinful, unholy and irreligious, we are shown mercy. 
The grace of our Lord is poured out on us abundantly. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. God's immense patience is for us who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Amen. We're going to celebrate that now in the words of this great hymn, Immortal Invisible, that was written in response to verse 17 in the passage today. Let's stand and sing together, Immortal Invisible.